Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. It's great to see you. The music stopped at the right time. I was up with one second ago. So it's good to be with you all this morning. Good morning. It's our pleasure to have you back with us. And for those of you watching online, it's so good to have you with us as well. If this is your first time at BRBC or first time tuning in, we are so, so glad to have you joining us. I just want to extend a massive welcome in behalf of the whole church family. We're so happy to have you with us. If you don't know who I am, my name is Peter, and I'm one of the pastors here at Bradfield and Ruffin Baptist Church. People call us BRBC, and we are a church that's all about loving Jesus together and helping others do the same. So hope you feel very welcome this morning for our worship service. We are invited to come and to lift our eyes to Jesus. I'm sure there's many things on our minds, many things we're looking at about the week ahead, about the week that has passed, worries, burdens, excitements, fears, what we get to do as a church this morning, lay those things at the feet of Jesus and lift our vision upward. So we're going to uh, listen to a song in just a second, but let me just read from the book of Titus as Paul writes these words. Hear this, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Well, you can kind of sympathize with Boris, can't you? My, my arms often feels floppy. My mind feels full of fluff as well. And we also make a mess of the world around us, but we know that in Jesus, someone has come to make that mess clean and to save us. So what we get to do, because Jesus has come near to us, is that we get to come near to the Lord in prayer. And so I'm just going to read those verses from Titus that I read at the beginning, and then we're going to pray together. So let me read from Titus again. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Well, in just a moment, we're going to have our Bible reading, and that's going to be from 2 Thessalonians, and Steve Gill is going to come and read the Bible for us, and to both honor God's word and to stretch our legs, I'm going to ask, would you stand up as we have our Bible reading this morning? Steve. Thanks, Peter. So our reading today comes from a book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. The man of lawlessness. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be from God. Do you not, sorry, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? 
And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please take your seats. Now, that's a fun passage this morning, isn't it? We're going to have some fun this morning. And um, you have joined us in our third part of our series in Second Thessalonians. And if we've not met before, and I'm guessing there's a couple of faces in here and also online, uh, my name's James and I'm one of the pastors here at BRBC. It is good to see you this morning. Now, the text we're in this morning is all about, all about dashed hopes, or should I say, the rebuilding of dashed hopes. And, and I wonder, if you could look across your life, have you ever had a dashed hope? Now, I think to be a human is to live in a broken world, and to be a human is to go ahead and put our hopes in things that n- can't always pay back on their promises. To be human is to know what a dashed hope feels like. We've had them before, haven't we? You know, when you build your expectations around something, you're looking forward to something, you're, you're molding your plans for that thing on the horizon, you're looking forward to it, tingling with anticipation, and then that thing you were hoping for comes crashing down around you, is ripped from your grasp, or is nothing that you thought it was going to be like. You know, that new job that you hoped you would have a boss that treats you a little bit better, but you only want to go back to the job you had before. Marriage, parenting, we build our expectations and it's so different to what we thought it was going to be like, right? And what about that family reunion at Christmas time? You thought it was going to be great, but only seemed to reignite those ancient family feuds. Uh, do you ever have those moments where your hopes are dashed? And perhaps we even, even know something of the emotions that come with dashed hopes, don't we? we? We know what it feels like when we get despondent when we have our hopes taken away. Oh, I I give up. I feel hopeless now. I'm done with this. There's no point fighting anymore. Sometimes with a dashed hope, we can grow cynical. It's not like a, I'm giving up, but it's more of like a, this isn't fair. I feel angry about this. I feel frustrated. I'm simmering that it didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. And then sometimes in the face of a dashed hope, we can grow panicky. Did, Did I plan well enough? Did did I think about all of the eventualities? Is it something I did wrong? I've got to work harder next time. There's loads of different emotions we can feel in the face of a dashed hope. Dashed hopes comes with being human. And if you know what that feels like, I think you will be able to step into the shoes of the Thessalonian church this morning because they are dealing with a dashed hope. They had been building their hopes on something that they thought could never be taken away, never taken from their grasp, never fall through their fingers. But now it seems as though the one thing they could hope for has been taken away from them. So there's now panic in this church. 
They're destabilized. They feel alarmed. They feel disturbed by what they have heard. And so what the Apostle Paul wants to do in this section of Thessalonians is to rebuild the hopes that they think have been smashed. Paul wants to write to them and say, this is what you can hope for. Now this is a different kind of a tone or a flavor to chapter 1. Chapter 1, we saw last week, Paul was dealing with external pressure. You remember, he's addressing those who are oppressing the church, or or he's addressing them about those who are oppressing them. And what he does is he calls them to look forward to see Jesus, look to that hopeful horizon of the coming of Jesus. Jesus is going to deal with this. It's okay, Thessalonians. But he moves from talking about the external pressure to now talking about the internal confusion. And this church is in disarray because it appears someone or some people have come along and taught them something rubbish. Something that is entirely not true. And this young group of Christians in Thessalonica have suddenly thought, oh no, they must be right. And so they've run a hundred miles off into the distance in the wrong direction and are full of this panic. And what Paul wants to say is hope is not lost. Your hopes aren't dashed. You have not been forgotten. You have not been abandoned, Thessalonians. It's going to be all right. So he's got to go and rebuild these hopes. So what I want to look at this morning, which is what most people consider this section in Thessalonians, is, is what most people think is the most complex of all of Paul's writings. I mean, he writes 13 letters, letters in the New Testament. And these verses are what people consider the hardest to understand. But there's still loads for us to get through this. There's still loads for us to extract it. So what I want to ask as we look through this is how does Paul rebuild their hopes? I mean, what is it that's destabilized them so much? And if they feel their hopes are dashed, how does Paul show them that they're not? How does he call them to face forward? How does he point them to that hopeful horizon of Jesus coming back? So let's do that. We're going to map this out this morning in three ways. First, verses 1 and 2. We're going to look at the Thessalonian problem. What's going on in this church? Why are they so alarmed and bothered? The Thessalonian problem. Secondly, we're going to look at the truth of the matter. So verses 3 and 4, Paul delivers the truth to tell them that they don't have to worry about this. And then verses 5 to 12, the really complicated bit, we're going to look at Paul's explanation about this character called the man of lawlessness who is to come. So Thessalonian problem, the truth of the matter, and Paul's explanation. Let's have a look at this first bit, chapter 2, and the first couple of verses here. Look at this. Now, come, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. Now you see right there, introduction to that chapter, what's he talking about? The second coming of Jesus Christ. Now we've said this already in our series in Thessalonians. This is a key element to the Christian story. Jesus in his first coming came and lived in our shoes, lived the life we couldn't live, died on the cross for our sins, ascended into heaven, gave the Holy Spirit, but he also left the promise that he's going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to restore and renew this broken world. He's going to judge, he's going to bring his justice, and he's going to make every wrong right and everything sad will come untrue. That's the Christian story and that's the Christian hope. So he's talking about this again. He's talking about that hoped for horizon. 
But the first thing he does is to kind of understand the emotions that the Thessalonians are going through. Do you see right there? He describes it in two ways. Shaken in mind. And what does he say? Alarmed as well. Now, this word shaken in mind, the idea behind this is it's kind of, it kind of means like being agitated. So if you think about a, a, water that, uh, a body of water that's really glassy, it seems very calm and serene, and maybe it makes you feel calm too. And then the water's all choppy and it's wavy. And if you're on a boat, you feel absolutely awful on this. Well, I do anyway. Think about the River Orwell. It's an estuary just towards Ipswich. In in the estuary, it's nice and glassy, even when it's a little bit windy. But as soon as you get out onto the North Sea, even if you get slightly seasick, you're going to be hanging over the edge of the boat because it's all over the place. Now, this word agitated is also used to describe when the water is choppy. You know we can feel that, can't we? Agitated or, or disturbed in mind like that. That's how they feel. But he also says they feel alarmed. This is to cry out in distress. That's how they feel. But the big question is, why do they feel shaken and why do they feel alarmed? Well, Paul doesn't know the source of it. He, do, he doesn't know who's said what. That's why he says, I don't know whether it's a spirit or, or it's a spoken word or, or it's a letter. He doesn't know where it's come from, but he knows someone is pretending to be him, or maybe even him on behalf of his team, and have told the church something that's shaken them. What has been said to them? End of verse 2. To the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. So that's the Thessalonian problem. That's why they're bothered, because somebody has come along, come into the church, brought some rubbish teaching, and said, by the way, guys, you know that you're hoping for Jesus, Bad news, Jesus has forgotten about you. Jesus has left you behind. You have been abandoned by the one thing that you thought you could hope for. Can you imagine being a fly on the wall in the Thessalonians' next church service after they heard this teaching? Can you imagine some of the conversation in this church as panic just breaks loose? Wait, wait, Jesus abandoned us? Didn't Paul tell us in his first letter that we were commended for our hope? He said we were full of a steadfastness in our hope. And now Jesus has forgotten about us? Oh no, now we've got nothing to hope for. The one thing that we thought could never be taken away, it's being taken. Did we do something wrong? Oh, I bet it's that family over there that's that's a problem. Or it's probably him or her. Somebody did something wrong. Jesus has left us behind. We have been abandoned. Now, Paul's aim is to look into that panic, into that destabilized church family, and tell them, it's okay. You know those times in life when you panic, and you feel overwhelmed, and it's difficult to think straight? You know, even if you consider yourself to be very emotionally stable, I I know there's going to be moments in your life where you just need somebody to step into that feeling of overwhelm, and say something to to kind of realign your heart and your mind. You know, there's people in your life that kind of grab you by the shoulders, they get nose to nose with you, they'll look you in the eyes and say, can you hear yourself? Stop! Let me tell you what's true. So it's like Paul is grabbing this church by the shoulders and just saying, think straight for a second, guys. Now we might look at the Thessalonians and kind of think to ourselves, you guys, I mean, you, you Thessalonians, you simple bunch. I mean, why did you do that? I mean, why did you go ahead and believe that pretender who was claiming to be like Paul? Thessalonian church, didn't you think for a second? Didn't you think that this might be wrong? 
They're all Thessalonians. Why didn't you just send a letter up the road to the church in Philippi and ask them, has Jesus come yet? I mean, Thessalonians, why didn't you stop to ponder in the pandemonium for just a second or two? We might want to level that criticism at them, but let's be careful. Because this is a very young church. And if it's a young church in a place where the gospel has only recently been preached, then these Christians have to be baby Christians. They're spiritually very, very young and therefore are showing the traits of spiritual immaturity. Now, spiritual immaturity is natural for a young Christian to show. And here's how immaturity, in spiritually speaking, works. That everything that has the Christian label seems attractive and makes sense and is believable. So, so being an immature Christian, these Thessalonians, is to look at all of the Christian content out there, and if it has the Christian label, then it's got to be true. And immature, 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 when we're immature in our faith, we grab a hold of absolutely anything that we'll hear and we'll read. And then what's Christian maturity? Well, an element of Christian maturity is being able to sift through the mountain of content that claims to be Christian. And to take the pieces that you could say, yes, that's good. I'm going to build my life upon that. I I can stand on that. That's a good foundation to live by. And then what you're also able to do is to take the bits that aren't so good and say, well, I'm going to reject that. I'm not going to stand on that. And I'm not going to build my life around that. Christian maturity is this ability to have this stability in all of the different thoughts and ideas. Christian maturity is when you come to the place when you see that not everything that shines is golden. But this is this church here. They're immature. They're believing everything that comes their way. I remember this when I was a baby Christian, spiritually immature, uh, in my late teens. I'd become a Christian in this place, and uh, not long after that, I found myself serving with a Christian football ministry out in the States. And it was that time in my Christian life where everything I heard in church was completely new to me. I thought it was just, it was like walking into a sweet shop every single Sunday, just like, I never heard that before. I didn't even know. I mean, everything I listened to, every article, every book, every conversation, this is amazing. How come no one ever told me this before? And I remember one lunchtime going online and reading this article, which had the label of coming from a good Christian thinker. And this article said something along the lines of, if you become a Christian, good for you, because the forgiveness of Jesus is yours. But if you have sinned since you became a Christian, there is no forgiveness of Jesus left for you. Now, I know to a mature Christian, it sounds ridiculous. But to a baby Christian, where that has the Christian label on it, I'm thinking to myself, why didn't anybody tell me this? Because I look inside of my own heart, And I see I haven't lived up to God's righteous standard. I haven't looked like Jesus in the last 24 hours. I know that I have sinned. Oh, no. All that's left for me is God's wrath. And I was just in this pit for days. Oh, why didn't anybody tell me this? That I had to be perfect. This is impossible. And then I needed a mature Christian to come in and say, James, turn to some passages in Scripture. And he began to show me, look, when we come to know Jesus, we are made righteous in God's sight. But our lives are still messy and imperfect. And we spend the rest of our our lives learning to become who we are in Jesus. That doesn't mean we suddenly become sinless instantaneously. I was a baby Christian, anything I read, anything I saw, just had to be true. And that's the, Steph- the Thessalonians right now, is that, is that they, they, anything they hear is true. I wonder if I can ask you this morning, are you growing in Christian 
maturity? Are you growing in that stability that when the waves of all of these different thoughts and ideas come your way, do you have that anchor that roots you in and amidst the tsunami of content out there? I mean, Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 4. Where is it? Ephesians chapter 4. And he's writing about Christian maturity. And he says we're growing up into the full manhood or adulthood in the faith. And, and he says to the, mature, um, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, spiritual children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's what the Thessalonians have gone through. And that's a good reminder to us that as we seek to grow mature as Christians, we're growing that ability to bring that constructive, critical questioning to everything that we hear. But the Thessalonian problem is that somebody's destabilized them that believe them. Okay, number two, the truth of the matter. Have a look at verses three and four. Paul wants to set them straight. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction, verse four, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This is Paul saying to the Thessalonians here, don't get your knickers in a twist. It's all right, guys. Jesus hasn't come back. And the reason I know he hasn't come back is because this stuff hasn't happened yet. Can you imagine the wave of relief that goes across this panicked church? Oh, he, he didn't abandon us. Jesus didn't forget about us. It's okay. You know the moment when you get off a roller coaster that you hate? You've been locked into that seat. You've gone upside down more times than you can count. You feel dizzy. You're about to throw up. And then you get off and you stagger away from the roller coaster. And then you have that sense of relief. That's the Thessalonians here. Oh, he hasn't come back yet. It's all right. We haven't been abandoned. And Paul's, Paul's reasoning, his logic here is here. We know Jesus hasn't come back. Because this stuff needs to happen first. And because this stuff ha hasn't happened yet, that means Jesus hasn't come yet. So that means, Thessalonians, you are not abandoned. You know sometimes how you have to talk to a small child about the plans for the week. So you might say, on Friday at 4 o'clock, you're going to go to your grandparents' house for the night. You're going to watch loads of TV. They're going to fill you with sugar. It's going to be great. But you're going at, you're going at 4 o'clock. Now, if you said to them, it's going to be on the, is it the 25th on Friday? 25th at 4 o'clock, you're going to go. And if they're a small child, they're going to, that's very hard to compute the time and the dates. What you might do is tell them what's going to happen before they get there. So you've got five more sleeps. And remember, you're going swimming on Wednesday. And on Tuesday, it's PE at school. And then after that, after school, on Friday, you're going to go to your grandparents' house. So you have to tell them what's coming first. That's how Paul is treating them. Is that Jesus hasn't come back yet because I know what needs to happen first. Okay, well, what needs to happen first? He gives us two things right there. Firstly, the rebellion. He doesn't say much about it in this text. The word here is like an apostasy. I think this is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, when he talks about this big turning away where people turn their backs on Jesus. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, where the love will grow cold. But that's not where Paul focuses here. He says there's another thing that needs to happen is the man of lawlessness needs to be revealed. So Paul is saying there is somebody to come in the future who has an incredible 
ability to deceive people and to lead them astray, who is bent on doing everything opposite to what God is doing in the world, against the gospel, against God's people, against the church. And this character is going to build that momentum against what God is doing in the world. And Paul is saying, because that person hasn't come yet, we know that Jesus is still yet to come here. Okay, I've got a million questions now. Well, we need to know more about this man of lawlessness. Well, Paul does that. He gives us, number three, an explanation. The explanation here of what this is going to look like. Now, when I read this next verse, I feel a little bit frustrated, and maybe you do too. Have a look at five and six. Do, not, do you not remember when I was with you? I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him. That's the man of lawlessness. Now, so that he may be revealed in his time. Now, when you read that, you think, well, hang on a second. So everybody in history, apart from the Thessalonians who was in the room when Paul taught about this first, has no idea what he said. So it's kind of like we're thinking, well, he, he gives us a handful of puzzle pieces, but the Thessalonians have all of the puzzle pieces. So it leaves us with some unanswered questions. Do you feel frustrated? I do. I just think, Paul, I, I know the Thessalonians know, but I don't. Can I have a bit more explanation, please? I want to fill in the gaps. It reminds me of a time when I was in my mid-teens at school. We had a teacher who, in the summertime, would open up all of the windows. He didn't like the smelly teenagers and the smell of B.O. in the room. So if it was in the summer, all the windows were open so we'd get a breeze coming through. And on Friday afternoon, the grass-cutting contractors would come through and cut all of the fields. But, of course, they were going to make a couple of very loud passes past the open window. And so he would be in the middle of teaching, and then when the lawnmower comes past, and you can't even hear yourself think, he then just kind of mouths his teaching. And then when the lawnmower had gone past, he says, and that is the meaning of life. And you just kind of, wait, hang on, say that again, please. This, is, this feels to me what Paul has done here, just like, oh, let me tell you, I've already told you Thessalonians, and we're just thinking we don't have everything. This is what it's like. Let me show you. Okay, let me tell you about the man of lawlessness. And that's everything you need to know about the man of lawlessness. You see, there feels like there's some gaps missing here because we don't know what was said. But the best we can do is to build this puzzle with all of the pieces that we do have, recognizing there's still some answered questions. Okay? So who is this man of lawlessness? As we're reading this, what do we see? Well, the man of lawlessness, it appears, is a man who is all about destruction and tearing down and division, subject to absolutely no one. That's this whole lawless sense behind the word. Seems to be the same person that, in, in the letters of John, he's talking about the Antichrist, seems to be the same person. Um, an unparalleled ability to deceive people. You might be thinking, well, when is this going to happen? Now, I know there's a massive debate behind all of this, but my view is that this is still yet to come for us. Now, I say that because we see in the text that Jesus actually meets this person and crushes them, and we haven't seen that yet. I mean, some people say this person came in the first century. I'm not really sure about that. Now, their arguments might surround the word temple here, but the temple doesn't, in Paul's words, doesn't always have to mean the actual temple in Jerusalem. Temple can mean other things in his words. So I think it's still yet to come. Okay, next question. This is going to happen. 
What's it going to look like? What are some of the characteristics of this character who's going to deceive people and work against God? Seven quick things here. Verse 6. The man of lawlessness is being restrained. Now, I stand alongside just about every theologian in history and say, I've got no idea what's restraining him. This restrainer, I don't know if it's a good restraining, a bad restraining, no idea. But he's being restrained, so at some time he's going to be unleashed, and then, then he's going to set to work in a new way. Secondly, lawlessness is already at work in the world. So this sense of, I'm turning my back on God, he can't tell me what to do, I'm going to, I'm going to go my own way. That's lawlessness. This is already at work in the world. It says that in verse 7. Verse 9, the man of lawlessness is of Satan. So you don't look at the man of lawlessness and say the power behind him is going to be good, it's going to be evil. Number 4, the man of lawlessness will do amazing things. We see that in verse 9. What do we, what do we see? False signs and wonders. So he's going to have this ability to make people's jaws drop with the amazing things he's able to do. Number five, the man of lawlessness will deceive people. We see that in verse 10. So something like a, like a, a, a large-scale global Pied Piper leading people astray with this message against God. Number six, the followers, those who follow him, will get what they've asked for. No God, no grace. No mercy. Look at the end of this passage. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they all may be condemned and um, condemned who, be, who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in run, unrighteousness. So they've made this decision. They don't want God and God gives them over into that unrighteousness. And lastly, number seven in verse eight, Jesus will win over the man of lawlessness. The Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and the uh, breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So Jesus will win here. But let's not lose sight of what Paul's doing. He's telling them this so that they can have reassurance. This is still to come. So therefore, Jesus hasn't abandoned you. Now, I know we can look at all of this man of lawlessness stuff and think to ourselves with our 21st century scientific minds and think to ourselves, this does seem a bit out there, doesn't it? I mean, this seems so far removed what we, what we experience. And it feels a little bit cryptic and mysterious. But there will come a time in history when people will pick up 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And Christians reading this will have this hair-raising recognition, this goosebump-giving realization that what Paul has said is actually happening now. There will be a time where people read this and say, there he is. We get it now. Everything Paul says makes sense. But for us right now, we have unanswered questions. But we get a picture. But I said, let's not lose sight. Let's keep the focus with this. Why is Paul telling them this? Because they've been told that Jesus has left them behind. So Paul is telling them this so that they can realize this stuff is yet to happen. Therefore, they've not been abandoned. Thessalonians, you can still hope. Thessalonians, you can still face forward. Thessalonians, that hopeful horizon of Jesus coming is still yours. Calm down, chill out. Don't, don't get this wrong. Listen to me. Jesus will not abandon you, Thessalonians. And that's the message to them. He's not abandoned them now. And he's never going to. Now, if that's the main point of all of this, I want to give us three simple key take-home truths today. All right, first one. This is about preparation, not speculation. This is about preparation, not speculation. 
Now, there's been a lot of people throughout history who've tried to guess who this man of lawlessness is. Let me, let me give you some of the guesses that have, have been put forward. King George II, Napoleon. Emperor uh, Friedrich II, Pope Gregory IX, both of whom accused the other one of being this character. Each side in the American Civil War, the League of Nations, Mussolini, Stalin, United Nations, Gorbachev, King Juan Carlos, Pope John Paul II, Yasser Arafat, Saddam Hussein, the New Age Movement, President Jimmy Carter, and President Ronald Reagan. You know, it's a long history of wrong guesses about who this character is, which leads us to see that this is not about speculation. We can't see this at this point, so what does that take us, take us to? To a place of preparation. To a place of preparation. This is what Paul wants for the Thessalonians. To be ready. To be prepared. If at any moment they are called to suffer for the name of Jesus. And that is true for us too. This passage takes us to a place. Where we recognize. That we must prepare. For the day where we may be called to suffer for the name of Jesus. And that could even be tomorrow. We need to be ready when our world is shaken, individually and together. When the world's pressure against us heats up a little bit, even more, we have to be ready to prepare. My boy Jude is learning about earthquakes at the moment in school. And we've been looking at fault lines, the ring of fire around the Pacific, and also looking at the, how, they, how they earthquake-proof a building. And engineers and architects come up with amazing ways to keep these skyscrapers standing, going through a mega quake. So they look at the foundations, they look at the material they're using, and how these buildings are structured. And so they're then ready so that when the ground actually shakes, they're still really resilient enough to keep standing. So that when the ground is shaken, they can keep standing. The same for us, right? We prepare before the earthquakes come, ready that at some point we may be called to suffer for the name of Jesus. Now you may be thinking to yourself, well, well, how do I prepare? How do I prepare? Well, here's for starters. Begin cultivating an attitude in your own heart and mind that sees suffering for Jesus as an honor to walk in his shoes and the way of the cross. Just the kind of attitude Paul was encouraging the Thessalonians to have in the first chapter that they would see walking in the shoes of Jesus, the way of the cross, and facing the same rejection that Jesus faced as a badge of honor. Just like Jesus teaches in the end of the Beatitudes, blessed are you who go through this persecution. They did it to me, they did it to the prophets too. Or or the apostles in Acts chapter 5, as they flee from the pressure and the persecution, rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Also, we, we can pray for boldness. That's a great way to prepare. In Acts chapter 4, they flee from the authorities and go straight back into the Christian community and then they pray for boldness, lifting their hands and together in one voice, praying to the sovereign Lord that he would make them bold. Another way you can prepare is grow closer into your Christian community. You know, in an earthquake, one wall standing on its own isn't going to do as well as four walls leaning on one another. In the church, we have the grace of being able to lean on one another in hard times. Those are ways we can prepare. Second take-home truth. Jesus is strongest. We see that in this passage. Paul, and like every author in the Bible, Jesus is ultimately authoritative. Jesus came and said to the disciples once, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am above all of this. We need to know that in the end, Jesus will win. 
And it's not even going to be a hard fight here. He's way above. You know, when Jesus is first coming, we see Jesus' salvation through the lens of his humility. We see Jesus taking on human flesh, walking in our shoes, becoming one of us, living the life we couldn't live. He became like a servant, Philippians says. And at the end of his life, he goes to the cross. And on the cross, he lays himself down. And in all humility, he is emptied so that we might go free. And through faith and repentance, we can now run to the risen Jesus. And because of his humility, we can know his forgiveness. We can know his grace. We can know his peace. We can have a hope that can't be taken. So his first coming, we see his salvation through the lens of his humility. But in Jesus' second coming, we see his salvation through the lens of his power. When he's going to put things right. When he's going to make things straight. When he comes with his perfect justice to make every wrong right. But Jesus is strongest. Jesus will win. And lastly this morning, your last take home, Jesus will not abandon you. If you belong to Jesus this morning, if you know him, then I want you to stand on this. If you've been confused by everything I've said so far this morning, and there's only one thing you take home, it's this. Because that's exactly what Paul wants the Thessalonians to hear. Jesus has not abandoned you. Now, for just about every single one of us, we are haunted in our lives by the memories of being left behind. Just about everyone. There's some point in our lives where we were hurt by the way we were rejected, by the way we were forgotten about. And sometimes that pain lingers on through the rest of our lives. It makes, us, makes it difficult to engage in relationships sometimes. It makes it difficult to let down the drawbridge of our hearts. It, it makes it difficult to trust, doesn't it? And sometimes we can download that experience into our spiritual lives. And we begin to say, well, Jesus leave me behind too. Will Jesus forget about me? Will he leave me behind? You know, sometimes in the depths of our hearts, we sound like these Thessalonians. Does Jesus really care? Is he going to leave me behind too? Well, the answer is, if you're in Jesus today, if you know him, then absolutely no. He's never going to leave you. Jesus isn't. It's through Jesus' work that you have been united to him, and you now have the smile of the heavenly Father over your life. Over your life. You've been included into his family. You are a part of his kingdom by bonds that cannot be broken. You see, you you have been included not on the basis that you have managed to get your life together. You've been included on the basis of his grace. And if it's on the basis of his grace, then he's never going to let you go. You see, the good shepherd, he's brought you into the fold. And this is a kind of shepherd that never lets his sheep go. So I wonder, are you standing in that assurance this morning? Do you know that he will not abandon you? Do you know that he will never let you go? Do you know you will never be forgotten by Jesus? Do you know that assurance today? We need to stand in that. Because we know there is no evil too strong in this world. There is no shadow that's too dark. There is going to be no valley that's too deep. There's going to be no struggle that's too hard that will stop Jesus from loving us and claiming us when he comes as his own. Do you know that assurance today, saints?
You see, Paul wants to give the Thessalonians the same assurance here. He wants to pour buckets of assurance on them. You think that Jesus has left you? No, Thessalonians. You've got a dashed hope, but it doesn't need to be dashed. You know, so often we, we, we hope in things in this life, don't we, that can be taken away. Relationships, jobs, things. But they can be ripped from our grasp. But Paul is saying the one thing that can never be taken away And if you don't know Jesus, come and know this hope today. That you have a hope in Jesus. That he will never abandon you. May we be a kind of people who stand in that assurance. And know he will never let us go. Heavenly Father, we are so, so grateful that you have made us your own. That by the the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. We've been brought into your family. We are your sons and your daughters. And you will never abandon us. But we're forsaken by the world over and over again. And we have hopes that we place in the wrong places and they are torn down and are nothing like we expected. But we know in Jesus we can stand in the same relief and the rest and the reassurance that the Thessalonians now do, that you will never, ever abandon us. And we're praying in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. May we stand in that same reassurance that Paul wants the Thessalonians to stand on. Jesus will never abandon you. Go in peace, saints.